You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to the latest news podcast for July, where we cover all the latest legislative and regulatory developments that advisors probably need to be aware of. Now, I'm your host, Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today are three members of my team. I've got Linda Bruce. Hey, Linda. Hey, Craig. Richard Chen. G'day, Richard. Hello, Craig. And Kim. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Now, today we're going to be covering a range of topics, including a number of changes that apply from 1 July. Now, we're all familiar with, you know, the main changes such as transfer balance caps going up to $1.9 million and all that sort of stuff. But today we wanted to talk about a few specific changes, including SMSF event-based reporting changes that come through as effective 1 July. Also, We're all aware that the account-based pension minimums have gone back to 100%, but what are the implications of those? So we'll have a look at that. Um, Last year, preservation age is uh, is below age 60. Did we all know that? Probably not. So we're going to have a look at that and understand what that means. Um, Age pension age increasing to age 67 and indexation of certain Centrelink and aged care thresholds and what that may mean for some of our clients. And finally an AAT, Administrative Appeals Tribunal decision, which discusses what the ATO considers is being special circumstances when we've got clients with excess contributions and we're trying to get them reallocated to a different year. Okay, so starting off with event-based reporting. So, Linda, now, since the introduction of the transfer balance cap, um, Superfund basically needs to report events that affect someone's transfer balance accounts. So things like starting a pension or commuting a pension, things like that. Now, big APRA funds, such as CFS, must report a reportable event, such as the commencement of a pension, within 10 business days. However, the requirements for self-managed funds are different, but there have been some changes, as I had mentioned before, since the 1st of July. So do you want to run us through what those changes are? Sure, self-managed super funds are always special out there. They are. Yeah. They are. So up until 30th June 2023, depending on the fund's members' total super balance at a particular 30th June, a self-managed super fund could either be an annual reporter or a quarterly reporter in the past. So for quarterly reporters, uh, these self-managed super funds they needed to report an event within 28 days after the end of the quarter in which the event occurred. Well, the annual reporter, they had a much longer time frame to report the event. That is, they don't have to worry about it until they, uh, they complete the fund's annual return. So think about it, it could be uh, until the following year's May when they lodge the tax return. Now, from 1st July 2023, so this uh, 1st July of this year, regardless of the members' total super balance, all self-managed super funds must report an event within 28 days after the end of the quarter where the event occurs. In other words, all self-managed super funds are now 
quarterly reporters. Okay, so when I think about that, that's going to help in a number of ways, isn't it? Mm. So the big one where will be where maybe you commute your pension that's sitting inside a self-managed fund. Maybe you want to ro- ro- wind up your self-managed fund and you roll over to a large APRA-regulated fund um, in that situation. So obviously you've had your original pension reported and then you're going to go and commute. So that's a debit, mm. so that's a transfer balance cap reporting event. But if that's, that's right. an annual reporter... That self-managed fund is not potentially reporting that debit for quite some period of time. They roll over to the large APRA fund. The large APRA fund reports the new pension yep. within 10 business days. So the ATA is looking at that go, oh, right, this person's now got two pensions. Actually, yep. it's not the case. It's and that case. does all eventually catch up. Mm-hmm. But now we're going to quarterly. That, that means the difference in time between when the large APRA fund is reporting when the SMSF is reporting is much reduced. So reduces the risk we're going to get an excess determination there, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. Correct. Okay. Now, what about events that occurred before the 1st of July and the SMSF was an annual reporter? So what happens there? What happens there? Um, those events will have to be reported uh, by 28th of October 2023. So they don't have until they launch the annual return for the last year uh-huh. to report those events. They have to report those events occurred before 1st July by 28th of October 2023. Right. So if I did start a pension during the last financial mm. year, my accountant needs to be onto that or mm. my administration service provider needs to be on that and they need to be reporting that before the 28th of October, not when we're lodging the annual return that's for last right. year. Okay, Otherwise, they might be penalties. Yeah, okay. So really, really important. Now, if you want to know more about this, we do actually have an event-based reporting podcast yes. um, that you can go and listen to. Okay, now moving on to the next issue, and this relates to the implications of the pension minimums returning to 100% from this financial year, 23-24. So I think by now most advisors are pretty much aware that after four years the minimums have gone back to 100% and that applies for account-based pensions, term allocated pensions and transitional retirement income streams. Mm -hmm. Now in terms of this, a few important things to consider. So firstly, Linda, if a client's pension account doesn't have enough cash balance now, Mm. right, could the minimum pension payment be paid by paying the asset in specie to the member? A quite good question. And we get this question all the time. The answer to it is that pension payments can only be made in the form of cash. In specie payment can only be treated as a lump sum commutation. So in specie uh, transfer an asset out, it's just not going to make it. Okay, so what you're essentially saying to me there is we've gone back to 100%. Uh, If I get to the end of the year and I don't have enough cash, then I'm going to need to sell assets Mm. in order to pay those pension payments. So actually, I should be thinking about this now, not waiting to the end of the year. Mm. The the fund may now have different liquidity requirements to last year, so I actually need to, to review that. That's right. That's right. Okay, so obviously just important to review the investment portfolio because of this. Now, also it's likely that some advisors may be dealing with clients who now have to take a higher amount. So some clients can't afford to reduce, but many can. And where they have reduced, they're now actually going to have to increase their pension payments potentially 
by double. Mm. Now, obviously, advisors going to need to sit there and look at that and think, well, what do we do with this extra income? Now, one of the things um, that we might have looked at is contributing these amounts back to super. Obviously, we've no longer got the work test between 67 and 75, so you've got a client in that age group. They potentially can take these pension payments and put them back into super. Now, if we're going to do that, what do we need to consider? Uh, the first thing we need to consider is the client's age. Uh, the client will need to be under age 75. Mm -hmm. in, just to be <laughs> specific, it's 28 days. Mm -hmm. After the end of the month, mm -hmm. the client turned age 75. So that's the cutoff date for a fund to receive a personal contribution very, from the very, member. It's very annoying to have to say that every single time. Every now. I wish single just time. Changed it. 75 please. Yeah, tell yes. me about it yeah so um, let's just say the client is under age 75 um, they still have other taxable income they intend to put the amount back to super and claim a tax deduction for that contribution what do we need to worry about if the client is under age 67 that's fine but if the contribution is made on after 67 the first day mm -hmm. we still have to worry about the work test otherwise the client is simply not eligible to claim the amount as a tax deduction mm -hmm. now the last one you would like this you love this uh, Craig how about this so many super fund um, yeah. uh, segregation issues yep. uh, if they clients say meeting all the rules uh, put their money back to super but they failed to move that amount into the retirement phase on the same day uh -huh. now we have an issue the mm -hmm. fund might be using the segregated method by default to mm -hmm. calculate the exempt current pension income now we have a small amount sitting in accumulation phase just for a short period it may not result in a lot of tax consequences but the fund all of a sudden we needed to get actuarial certificate. That yeah. is money. It costs money, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it will. You know, what are they these days? Probably $150, $200, depending on, on the quality of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really important um, thing to think about. If we are putting these amounts back in, now if the client doesn't already have an accumulation account, and a lot of people will have an accumulation sitting there because of the transfer balance cap rules. They'll have used up their 1.6, 1.7, mm. and they've left, or even now these days, 1.9, and they've left a bit of accumulation. So the money you recontribute, it goes straight back into the accumulation account. It doesn't make a big issue for us. But if we're putting this extra ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars in back into the SMSF, mm. that's going back into the accumulation phase. Well, in a way, we'd have to roll back the original pension, accumulate it all, and mm. start, and that's a whole bunch of admin and process and expense to do all of that, or we just sit it leaving in accumulation phase, which means ongoing yeah. that they're going to have to get an actuarial certificate. But even where we do do that double shuffle or even potentially start a second pension, mm. we want to do that on the same day. Yeah. If we leave it one day even, then as a result, we've got part of the fund in accumulation phase for part of the year. And potentially we're now having to go out and get an actuarial certificate for the fund. So yeah, a good thing to avoid. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, preservation age. Now, this is the last year we're going to have a preservation age below age 60. So those that were born before the 1st of July 1964, they've already reached their preservation age of 59. And for those who were born on or after the 1st of July 1964, well, they'll reach their preservation age at age 60 
from 1 July 2024. That's so that's right. next year, which yep. means you can't reach your preservation age this, this year. year. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, so what does that mean? Uh, that's correct, Craig. Uh, no clients will freshly meet their preservation age in this financial year. Uh, they would have already met their preservation age previously, and whether or not they want to commence a transition to retirement pension depends on the circumstances. But this year, no one will reach preservation age. And this financial year is the last financial year we have a situation where a client might be between uh, their preservation age and age 60. And this will be the last year we ever have to deal with the low rate cap. Okay, so we, we get this question quite often, don't we? So clients reach their preservation age, has unrestricted non-preserved benefits, mm. maybe they're retired or they're TPD and they want to take a lump, out, lump sum out under the low rate cap mm. and they're wondering, should they do that or should they wait until they reach age 60? So what are the differences there? If the client takes the lump sum withdrawal after they reach the preservation age, but still at the age of 60, it's correct that the taxable component that can be covered by the low rate cap, currently $235,000, mm -hmm. uh, that amount uh, will be taxed at 0%. In practice, the ATO will provide a lump sum tax offset to reduce any tax payable on this amount to 0%. And also, uh, the Medicare levy, Medicare levy surcharge, Division 293 tax will not be uh, relied on this income at all. Uh, however, there are some other differences because the clients in this age group will still need to report this income in their tax return. It still form part, forms part of their assessable income, taxable income, and adjust the taxable income. So any tax measure or super measure that's relied on this kind of income definition uh, will be affected. For example, in the increase the income, uh, either assessable income or tax income or just taxable income could have flow-on impact on, uh, i just give you a couple of examples, the low-income tax offset, the government co-contribution, uh, and the spouse, uh, the um, uh, contribution tax offset, and some people's family tax benefit payments. Uh, and in comparison though, if the client has reached the age of 60, any super and pension withdrawals, <laughs> let's ignore pension, let any super withdrawals, super lump sum withdrawals uh, will become a non-assessable, non-examined income so long as these lump sum withdrawals were taken from a tax fund. Right. And right. that means yep. there is no requirement whatsoever to report this income in the tax return. That means there's no flow-on impact on all the things I mentioned earlier. Right. Okay. So if I can summarize all of that, uh, if I take it before 60, the amount, even if it's taxable component up to 235000 it gets included in my assessable income. That's right. But they apply an offset to reduce the tax back to zero. zero. Yep. But it's still in my assessable income. Yes. So therefore, it's still going to potentially impact my eligibility for things like government co-contribution, family tax benefits, all those kinds mm. of things. But if I just simply wait until I turn 60, that payment is non-assessable, non-exempt, doesn't impact any of those such things such as government co-contribution eligibility. That's correct. All right, cool. Now, moving on to Kim. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Craig. Moving on to Kim. Hello, Kim. Hi, Craig. 
Now, age, pension age, increasing to age 67. It is. Mm, okay, so from 1 July? Yeah, so it is from 1 July this year, 1 July 2023, age pension age goes to age 67, but, but yeah, it does it in a weird way. Yeah. yeah, it's like when you were just talking about preservation age and you had a whole year where nobody's actually reaching preservation age. It's the same sort of thing with age pension age. Um, because it goes up by six months every two years, um, there is actually a little six month period where no one's actually going to reach age pension age. And that is between 1 July, uh, this year and 31 December this year. So there's a six month period where no one's going to reach age pension age because all of those people who had to be, get to 66 and a half are already at age pension yeah. age and yeah. all those people who have to be 67 to get to age pension age, that won't start happening until the 1st of January next year. Right, so no age pension application forms for couple of form, couple of months? Well, um, um, there may be people who didn't put it in oh, as soon as true, they turned age pension true. age and they, for various reasons they might still be wanting to put them in, but at least you don't have that, you know, making sure that um, is their birthday coming up and, and yeah. having to prompt them to put the age pension. That's not happening for six months anyway. Right. Now, I remember when this first originally got floated quite a long time ago now, and they mm. were originally talking age pension age of age 70. Yes, they? they were. And then they, Very got hounded, yeah, they got hounded down with all this sort of work to your drop kind of messaging. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they kind of backed off and said, oh, well, it's going up to 67, not to 70. Yeah. So are we going to 70? Hasn't been any talk about that recently right. that I've so seen. So there's no more time mm -hmm. frames where it's going to increase. It's 67. At it. the moment, it's just 67. Okay, yep. cool. Now, moving on to a very exciting topic, um, indexation <laughs> of Centrelink and aged care thresholds. It is exciting, Craig. Mm. Now, um, what's changed? Well, every 1st of July, some thresholds get indexed by CPI. And as we know, CPI has been quite high lately, so some thresholds have gone up quite a bit. Um, and the thresholds mm. that have gone up are the income test-free area, the asset test-free area, um, this is for pensions, and um, the deeming thresholds have okay, all so, increased. So let's start with deeming. Mm. What have they increased to? So the lower deeming rate for a single person um, it used to apply to 50, the first 56,400 of financial investments, and that's gone up to 60,400. And for couples, it used to apply to 93,600, and that's gone up to 100,200. Okay. So a bit of an increase there. Now, the deeming rates themselves, they're still frozen, aren't they? They're still frozen at 0.2 and 2.25 until 30 June next year. So right. it'll be interesting to see what happens when they are no longer frozen. But at the current time, those redeeming rates are the same. It's just the thresholds as to how much it applies to that is Yeah, up. so that, that's actually quite important because I think mm. there's a lot of advice out there saying no changes to the deeming rates. Yeah. Actually, there, there are. It's just to those thresholds. It's not to the rates themselves. Not the rates themselves, exactly. Now, I'm guessing that if we get an increase in these rates, that's going to impact someone's age pension entitlement? That's right. So you might see some increases. Um, it also Im impacts how much you can have in financial investments and still get the maximum rate of age pension. So if we look, for example, at a single homeowner, um, if we assume they've just got money in financial investments and $10,000 in other assets, then it's gone up by almost $20,000 to $300,000 that a single homeowner can have and still get the maximum rate of age pension. Yep, that's good. 
Um, and for couple homeowners, it's gone up by more than thirty thousand dollars to four hundred and fifty-one thousand five hundred um, that they can have in financial investments and still get the maximum rate age pension. Okay, so obviously, as I said, we we might get an increase. Some of our clients may get an increase in age pension because of this indexation. Now, I guess the lower thresholds, because the lower guess thresholds have increased. Um, the cutoff thresholds have also increased, I yep. would assume? Yep, they go together. So yeah, if the lower one increases, the upper one increases as well. Um, and so that means that you might find some people who previously couldn't get the age pension who now might be able to because the upper cutoff yeah. threshold is a bit higher. Yeah, so some people get more and some, well, might be lots of people get more, either a bit more or more than nothing. That's right, yeah. yes. <laughs> okay, so now you also mentioned aged care. Yeah, so the interest rate. Mm. Mm. Now, what's this increase to? 7.9%. It's pretty high, isn't it? Yeah. It was 7.46 and now it's 7.9. So everybody... Half percent, wow. Yeah, it's a bit of a jump. Um, and so all those people who enter aged care from 1 July 23 to 30 September 23, they will be subject to the interest rate of 7.9% on their accommodation payments. So that's going to cause clients who pay part or all of their accommodation payment as a daily accommodation payment or my favourite aged care acronym of a DAP, um, to pay a higher amount if they enter aged care, obviously, from, from on or after the 1st of July? Yes, that's right. So all those people who are paying um, DAP payments are going to pay a higher amount and they're going to need to make sure they have sufficient cash flow to meet those payments. Um, but interestingly, those low means residents who, who don't pay an accommodation payment, they, they pay an accommodation contribution instead. Interestingly, the increase in the interest rate may actually benefit them. So if they are paying some of that accommodation contribution as a lump sum, then a higher interest rate actually reduces the amount they have to pay as a lump sum. So um, yeah, it might actually benefit those cool. Mm. So some people actually may benefit from interest rates going up. Yeah, yes, some. Well, mm. those people who don't have mortgages and lots of older people that, you know, um, relying on their savings, obviously, all that sort of stuff. But for those clients who pay an accommodation payment and enter aged age care after 1 July, they're going to, as we said before, need to take into account the, that increased daily accommodation. Yeah, payment. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Craig. Now, Richard. Okay. Sitting there patiently. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Now, I hear that someone recently annoyed the ATO, <laughs> which is always good, um, by taking them to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal for not agreeing to disregard or reallocate some excess super contributions. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Sure thing, Craig. Basically, a member made a contribution to their super funds clearinghouse right before the end of a financial year, but the funds did not arrive into the bank account of the super fund um, until after the new financial year, and therefore the contribution was counted towards the member's cap in the new financial year uh, as per the ATL's um, tax ruling, 2010-1. Okay. All right, so and why is that a problem? Well, not knowing this had happened, the member went on to make more contributions uh, in the new financial year. Yeah ended up with an excess contribution. Okay, so they didn't like that, obviously. What's their argument to the ATO? Well, the member's, the member's position was that the excess was caused by the accountant, mm -hmm. not making it clear regarding the timing of making member contributions. They then applied to the tax office um, for a determination to disregard or reallocate that excess contribution due to having a 
quote, special circumstance. Okay, so it's, it's always someone else's fault. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which kind of, you can kind of understand it in this circumstance. I mean, the money's gone into the clearinghouse. They think the contribution's made, right? Mm. Um, and unfortunately, though, uh, look, knowing the ATO and their previously stated position that professional negligence doesn't constitute special circumstances, I, I suppose I, I, I don't like their chances. So what did the ATO say? Yeah, so um, the ATO rejected the application. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, on the basis that uh, when looking at their situation holistically, the cause for the excess was due to reasons that were really within their control. Um, and while the accountant might have partially contributed to the excess, the ATO stated that they don't consider an error on the part of the accountant qualifies as a special circumstance in this case. So, right, so you're telling me that the member didn't accept this and said, bug you, Mr. ATO, I'm taking you to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal to get this reviewed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right, and so what did the AAT say? Uh, they said no. <laughs> <laughs> so they agreed with the ATO. Right, so, all right, they tried their, their appeal but lost. So tell me, what, what actually are special circumstances then? Yeah, sure. Um, firstly, though, I should point out that the ATO provides guidance in the PSLA 2008 slash one. Oh. <laughs> it's a technical talking term. Te talking technical, <laughs> Richo. Yeah, um, which sets out all the relevant rules, conditions uh, they would consider when determining whether they should disregard or reallocate uh, excess contributions. And at a very high level, a special circumstance is generally anything that's unusual or out of ordinary that would make the excess contribution outcome unfair, unjust, unreasonable, or inappropriate for a member. And factors that are, that are considered uh, in assessing special circumstance uh, include the amount of control the person has, mm -hmm. whether it was reasonably foreseeable, and if there is any agreement or arrangement covering the amounts and the timing of the contribution. All right, so blaming someone else doesn't look like it's going to cut it. Um, do you have a few examples of what might cut it? Yeah, sure. Um, a good example of that is um, where an employee receives late super guarantee payments from an unrelated employer. And in contrast to that, um, if the member is the sole director of the company or had control over the timing and the amount of the contribution, then it would be less likely for that to be considered a special circumstance. Okay, so, so what you're saying there is that if an employer hasn't complied with their timing requirements to get SG in, and the employee's got no control, they're not involved in this at all, then the fact that they've missed their deadline and it's gone in after the 1st of July or 30th of June, um, and that causes an excess, that is special circumstances. That's exactly right. Right. Um, any other examples? Yep. Another example uh, is recontribution strategy or personal deductible contributions. Uh, under these circumstances, the ATL will generally not consider them uh, as special circumstances because the member is likely to have reasonable control over the amount and the time uh, of the payment um, and is expected to know whether that amount is contributed within their cap limits or not. Right. Okay. So. If I rewind there, so you're saying an employer, you don't have any control, they've stuffed it up. Um, as a result, you can apply special circumstances, but if you are the employer, you are the director of your own company, or you're doing a recontribution, you're involved, you should have known better, that's not special circumstances, 
we're not reallocating. Yeah, that's right. Right, so the amount of control you got clearly very, very important. Now, it's good you've provided probably what I would consider fairly straightforward examples there, but what if your circumstances, and we see a lot of these, that are quite complicated or quite convoluted and they do want to apply for the ruling because they don't think the ATO has assessed this fairly, where do they go or what do they do to be able to do that? Yep, um, they can go to the tax office website to download a, co a copy of the application form. Uh, file name is NAT7133, again, another oh, technical term there. Stop <laughs> it. Yeah, com <laughs> complete it, uh, and then either fax it, which I don't think anyone does anymore, um, lodge it through the online services for business or through the tax agent, um, or mail it to the tax office PO box. Um, and the details are all available on their website. Right. Okay, Richard, so do I actually have to wait before I get an excess determination? No, that's not necessarily. Um, if a member knows that they're likely to breach their cap due to special circumstances, right. they can apply in advance. Okay, so that's actually really quite important. So we've just gone over the end of the financial year. We might have clients that end up exceeding their cap and they find out via a determination. We, we might want to go back and look at that PSLA, what was it, Richard? 2008 forward slash one. Oh, nice, nice, nice. <laughs> um, and to give ourselves an understanding of whether or not we've got a leg to stand on or not. Or it may well be that we've become aware of this pretty much straight away and we can go and put this application in straight away for something like where an employer has missed their deadlines. Um, all right, I think that pretty much sums it up for this edition of Latest News. Thanks, guys. Thank you, thanks, Craig. And thanks for listening. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventius Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.